Good morning, Redeemer. We are glad that you can be here uh, this morning and uh, take this time to enjoy the worship of our living God uh, here at Redeemer. And uh, if you're visiting with us, we're so glad that you can be a part uh, of this time together. And uh, we'd love to know that you were with us and have a uh, make a connection with you. One of the ways that we ask you to do that is just to text the word welcome to that number that's on the screen. Uh, it just helps us to know that you were here and, and gives us, kind of puts you on our radar uh, so that we can reach out to you and, and uh, help get you connected. Um, we also would just encourage uh, any of our uh, members that are here, if you see anybody sitting near you that uh, you don't, aren't familiar with, just reach out a hand, greet them uh, before you move on to uh, greeting friends as well. Uh, but we also would uh, let you know that we have our Redeemer Open House, which will be next Sunday, October 8, uh, for anyone that'd like to uh, get connected with a few other people uh, at the church. And uh, uh, Dick and Janet Champ, uh, they're the hosts uh, for our Redeemer Open House. They're going to be at the uh, Welcome Center today. They'd love to talk to you uh, a little bit more about that. So this is open to anyone who'd like to come, and uh, the uh, more information is in the bulletin. Uh, we also have an opportunity for... Uh, prayer, uh, where we are, um, the elders have uh, responded to the command in James 5, uh, 14, uh, about if you are sick, if you are in need uh, of uh, the Lord's uh, healing in different ways, uh, to call for the elders to come and pray. And so the, the scripture puts the initiative on you, but we're making the invitation open to say, please call upon us uh, so that we can come around you uh, in prayer, and uh, so that is one opportunity that we have as well. Uh, today is our Hospitality Sunday, so we do not have our Sunday school classes, uh, but it's a time we enjoy communion together, and then the Sunday school teachers get an opportunity as well to have time of fellowship, and uh, we encourage people to invite each other into each other's homes and just enjoy that time of hospitality uh, with one another, and uh, just grateful for the time we have uh, together in uh, building up one another. So, uh, lots more bu- uh, announcements in the in the uh, bulletin. We encourage you to review that and uh, take this time now to prepare our hearts as we come before our God. We have gathered here to worship our infinite, eternal, and unchangeable God. And we are wise, according to the scriptures, to fear Him, to show Him the deep reverence and awe that He is worthy of. We hear in our call to worship from 2 Kings chapter 17. And the statutes and the rules and the law and the commandment that He wrote for you, you shall always be careful to do. You shall not fear other gods, and you shall not forget the covenant that I made with you. You shall not fear other gods, but you shall fear the Lord your God, and he will deliver you out of the hand of all your enemies. We can rejoice about that truth in song as we stand to sing, The Lord Almighty Reigns. (laughs) 
God, we do come to You this morning praising You for who You are and for what You have done. We are grateful that You have welcomed us into Your presence. We are honored, Lord, to be in Your house and to be uh, loved by You with an everlasting love, one that was uh, exactly the same love as You love Your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, whom we are united with by faith. And so we thank You that You delight in Your children and ask that as Your Spirit works in us, uh, that You would be the one that in all the, the chaos of life, that you would be the one to still our souls and to find our rest in Jesus. Amen.
Thank you. You may be seated. I think we probably need to have that imagery capturing our souls of what eternity will be like at rest with our God. We look forward to the wonders of what it is to have every tear wiped away, to have the joy complete, no longer awaiting and waiting and waiting, but it is complete in the presence of our great God. While the Lord is preparing His bride, His church, for exactly that day, He is helping us to grow more and more in the image of Christ. And so there's uh, time that we have to uh, hear God's Word and to identify things in our lives that are not reflecting of Christ, to confess those things to Him and to know that He is at work. We are under construction, and He is doing that shaping and that molding. And so uh, we are going through our Ten Commandments series, and we have already completed looking at the duties and the uh, required and the sins forbidden for those who are under authority, what the uh, old English calls the inferiors, and now talking about the responsibility of the superiors, those that have authority over other people. There are certain duties that are required. And so reading uh, the uh, fifth commandment from Exodus uh, chapter 20, uh, verse 12, and then we will recite the uh, confession uh, together. God's Word says, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And so we'll answer this question. What is required of superiors towards their inferiors? It is required of superiors according to that power they receive from God and that relation wherein they stand to love, pray for, and bless their inferiors, to instruct, counsel, and admonish them, countenancing, commending, and rewarding such as do well, and discountenancing, reproving, and chastising such as do ill, protecting and providing for them all things necessary for soul and body, and by grave, wise, holy, and exemplary carriage to procure glory to God, honor to themselves, and so to preserve that authority which God hath put upon them. And so for all of us who have uh, children, we have an authority over them. For anyone here who is in business and perhaps has employees under you, you own a business or you're, you have a place of authority in that business, um, we think of those in government, we think of all different uh, ways that people have authority over others, uh, we need to recognize that these are things, the duties that are required of us. And so let us go to our God confessing the ways that we fall short in these things. Father, we acknowledge that when we think of the fifth commandment, very frequently we only think about what is required of our children in obeying their parents, and yet we also observe that as your word and your commands are just a summary of all that you've required, that you have placed responsibility, heavy burdens uh, upon us as well to care for the souls 
of our children, to care for uh, those who are under us in authority in a variety of different contexts. And Lord, uh, it is so easy for us to blame shift things that we think should be done that are not, and perhaps we are not leading by example in the way that you have called us to. And so we come confessing our own sins, taking responsibility for our own actions or lack of actions uh, in the way that we would serve those that are under us in authority and uh, give uh, us the help, Lord, that we would imitate you, the one who is in supreme authority and the one who is so patient and tender and caring and wise and humble and uh, that we would emulate your character, uh, that we would relate best uh, to those that we serve and that we would honor you most. And we pray it in the uh, glory of Christ's holy name. Amen. The Lord uh, offers us this assurance of our pardon from uh, Hebrews chapter 8. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Well, that is an incredible promise uh, that we can have, but it is only a promise that we can have by faith in Jesus Christ. And we know that he is our wonderful, our merciful Savior. Let us stand and praise him for it.
Please join me in our prayer of thanksgiving. Father, this morning we are so thankful that you are our wonderful, merciful Savior. Just in this last week, some of us may have experienced great joys and encouragement, while some may have had great disappointments and heartache. But through it all, you have been an everlasting, faithful, and steadfast God. Even the fact that we are able to worship here this morning is only due to your grace and goodness in us. Be with Pastor DeBoer now as he prepares to give us your message. Give him clarity and boldness. Soften our hearts to receive your word. In a time when truth is so relevant and lies creep in from every direction, give your church the courage to stand and fight the spiritual truth war that we are in and that your church has been fighting against since the beginning. Be also with the offering we are about to take. Bless the funds and use them to further your kingdom here on earth. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
just the right words for us before we come together with prayer. I want to read you just a verse from the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew that will help us as we begin praying this morning. It may seem strange, but I hope it makes sense as the rest of the service unfolds. This is from Matthew chapter 3, the baptism of Jesus. The Spirit of God descends like a dove and comes to rest on Jesus, and a voice from heaven says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We're turning to that God now in prayer. Would you join me? Father, one of the things that makes prayer difficult for us is sometimes we wonder if the things that we ask you are really things that you will hear. We have already repented of our sin, especially those sins where you have given us responsibility to care for others and we have failed. I think of my own responsibility as a parent to care for my children. Sometimes I feel like I've said way too much and I'm harsh and overbearing. At other times it feels like there are things I should have said or corrected and I just let them slide. We have other responsibilities in life, sometimes as employers, as those who are responsible in our communities, those who are called to be elders and deacons in our church, those who lead the women's ministries. And it is true, Lord, that sometimes we have done things we should not, and other times we have left undone the, the, the uh, things that we should have, and we have violated your commandments. So we come before you in this time of intercessory prayer, and we wonder, do you really hear us, God? Would you really answer my prayers? You know my heart like no one else does. And because you know my heart, you know my pattern of life, the things that I've done and not done. Lord, will you really hear me? And that's where a verse like this from Matthew is so helpful for us, both in our corporate prayer, but also in our private prayer. And we pray especially this morning for those who are walking through very difficult seasons in life, those who are struggling with long-term diagnoses of, evil, uh, of illness, those who are struggling in difficult relationships, maybe a marriage, a parent-child, maybe a, an adult child who's wandered away from you. Some of us are struggling with our own sin very deeply. We have this desire that we keep battling against. And sometimes we're successful, sometimes we're not. Maybe we're disappointed, Lord, in where you've brought us in life. We have these ambitions and goals, all these things we were going to do, and now those dreams have shattered. Maybe we're just filled with fear this morning. With fear of all those things that could happen to us. Maybe fear for our children and our grandchildren. Maybe fear that what we're hoping will never come to pass. And we wonder, but do you hear us, Lord? Do you really answer my prayers? And that's when we turn to a passage like this in Matthew, where the gospel writer records the Father, the God of all the universe, the one who created everything out of nothing by the word of his mouth, says about his son, Jesus Christ, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. We're so grateful this morning for all those places in the New Testament that tell us that we are in Christ. That we are not simply by ourselves, but we are in our Savior Jesus. And because we are in Him, 
We have an advocate before our Father. We appear before you clothed in Jesus Christ and his righteousness so that you do in fact hear us. And even more than just hearing us, you have promised to answer us according to your kindness. And Lord, we do bring before you those things that are on our hearts. For those who are ill, we pray for them this morning. Lord, would you answer their prayers for health and for continued life. For those who are struggling in those deep places in life with employment challenges, Lord, hear them as well. For our homes, for our mothers and our fathers, for others of us who would like to be married, for those of us who are missing our spouse this morning for whatever reason through death or divorce, for those of us who are missing our children either because they've moved away or because they've wandered from you, for those of us who look at our world and wonder what are you doing for all of these, Lord, we lay them before you. And we ask that by your grace you would hear us, that you would answer us, that you would do great things for the glory of your Son. And we even pray this morning that you would use us as a body of believers, one and all, that we together would be evidence that what Jesus said he came to establish, in fact, came to pass. He said he came to bring his kingdom into this world. And I pray for each person who is here this morning, those who have been here many, many weeks, and those of us who are here for our first time, that we would taste a bit of that eternal kingdom that Jesus came to establish, that the joy with which we meet each other, maybe it's the shrieks of delight of young children seeing their friend again, maybe it's a firm handshake, maybe it's a hug, maybe it's a smiling face, whatever it is. Father, this is the place where that kingdom that Jesus said he came to establish is most clearly seen. I pray for the sermon text I'm about to preach. We need your Spirit's help in order for that to be clearly explained. We pray for the administration of the Lord's Supper, the place where we come to be confirmed that this Son with whom you are well pleased is in fact our Savior. He belongs to us. We belong to Him. We need to be affirmed, Lord, that this is true. We pray whatever would keep us from that, you would guard and protect us from that instead of our wandering minds and our uncertainties and our doubts and fears, your power, the power of your Spirit would overcome each. Lord, and so we turn to you and we ask these things confidently in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. We're turning in our Bibles to the Gospel of Luke this morning. I'd invite you to turn there if you have a Bible with you. If you don't, you're welcome to read in the screen behind. If you came this morning and you don't have a Bible at all, either here or at home, you're welcome to catch me after the service. We have a supply that we can give to you. Uh, you'll also see some people walking around with name tags, and those folks would be really good people to ask those questions uh, to. We're in John chapter 7. I'll be reading verse 53 and then through verse 11 of chapter 8. Hear the word of God. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. 
The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote in the ground. But when they heard it, they went away, one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with a woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. If you have your Bibles with you, you'll note that above this text, if you're using the ESV, there are, in capital letters, the words, the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through verse 811. I want to explain this to you before we go to the text because it gives me the opportunity to talk to you about how we got the Bible and whether you can believe the words that we read are in fact the words of God. The first thing I want to say about this notation the Scriptures is that it is relatively rare We don't read this very often, but it does reflect how we have received the Bible. You may know the autographa, the original, the original gospels and letters of the New Testament no longer exist. Instead, we have copies of them. There are about 25,000 copies of the New Testament that lie behind the edition of the Bible that we read from this morning. There are about 6,000 of these that are Greek texts. That is, in the language in which the original was written. The other remaining number of texts are those that are early translation of these Greek texts. The earliest of the Greek texts were copied about a 100 years or so after the originals. In other words, they were very close to the originals. Among all of those 6,000 Greek manuscripts, imagine even the 300 or so people in this building all trying to say the same thing. You know how badly that goes so quickly if you've ever played telephone? Among these 6,000 Greek manuscripts, there's 85% agreement among all of them at any given point. It's okay if you're surprised by that. It's truly amazing. And if you take the readings that have the most support... There's a much, much higher degree of agreement. I believe it's true that there are less than, hear this, 1% of all New Testament words about which there is a question. If you compare that to other documents that were written about this time in history, you will notice this is far greater in terms of agreement and number of manuscripts. Now, in particular, when we look at these verses... The earliest manuscripts of the book of John do not include this section in this place. The second thing, however, I want you to understand is that this account is found in other places in the gospel manuscripts. 
I don't often quote from scholars when I preach, but I'm going to this morning. D.A. Carson, who I take to be one of the eminent New Testament evangelical scholars, says, quote, There is little reason for doubting that the event here described occurred. So, even if we're not sure where it belongs in the Gospels, I can say with full confidence it belongs somewhere. And so I want you to be confident this morning that what we're reading, even though it has this notation in the ESV, it's a helpful notation. It should be there. We are, in fact, reading what is part of the Scripture record. It's real history in real time. It is spirit-given, even though I cannot tell you for sure that this is precisely the place it should be placed, it should be put in the Gospel of John. In other words, we're not sure where even though we're sure it is. So with that said, I want to preach it to you this morning as inspired scripture that captures real history. You might think of it as an addendum to the gospel of John, perhaps not occurring in history at this point, but occurring at some point. Is that enough said about this? Let's go to the story. The first thing I want to tell you about these verses is that these verses are not about adultery. I'm not saying they don't touch on adultery, that the seventh commandment doesn't matter in our understanding about these verses. The seventh commandment is true. It says, you shall not commit adultery. We should not have sexual relations with those we're not married to. That's true. I'm affirming that. I'm just saying that's not the primary point of this section. In order to tell you why that's true, I've got to walk through this passage with you. It made it sound like that's a little bit of a chore. I'm glad to do that with you. When this section opens, we read about a woman who is caught in the act of adultery. I don't know when we read that phrase, that verse, if that struck you as strange. I want to suggest to you it should. First, adultery is not something that just happens, as one author has said, in splendid isolation. She was caught in the act of adultery with another person, we can presume a man. But we do not find anything about that man here. Did he get away? Did they ignore him? Was this just a setup using this woman in order to try Jesus? We find out in the following section, when we read the question, the scribes and the Pharisees asked Jesus in verses 4 and 5. It turns out, hear this, the interest of these leaders is not, first of all, in the well-being of this woman. I could say to you, it's not even in what is most pleasing to God. Instead, the point of this setup is to catch Jesus in the squeeze between what they perceived to be this very difficult question according to the Old Testament law and what was allowable in their contemporary situation. Since we're not living in Roman times, I'll explain to you what that means. But first, I want you to note a second thing, why this should strike you as strange, this setup. There's very little said about the woman herself. There's no concern with her relationship with the God who gave the seventh commandment. There's only a focus on what Jesus is going to do with the problem they presented. Look at this problem again in verses 4 and 5. 
They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? What do you think, Jesus? Should we stone her or not? For some background into this question they are raising, sometimes the Pharisees will twist the Old Testament a bit in order for it to suit the question they're asking Jesus. That's not what happens here. In Deuteronomy 22, verses 23 and 24, Moses writes that if a betrothed virgin is un- a virgin is unfaithful to her husband, she should be stoned along with her partner in that sin. In other places in the Old Testament, death is prescribed for unfaithful wives and their partners. But no means is given there. In other words, in this case, these Pharisees could go back to Deuteronomy chapter 22, whether this woman was pre-married or she is now married, and they could rightly ask Jesus, this woman, she has committed adultery, should she be stoned? Now the problem, of course, is that the Jews were not living under their own authority. They were living under the Roman authorities. And the Roman authorities would not have allowed this. Remember later on when Jesus is tried, they need the permission of the Roman authorities to put him to death. That would have been true here as well. And the Roman authorities would never have agreed to put someone to death for this kind of sexual sin. And hence the horn of the problems. If Jesus disobeys the law of God and says, no, don't stone her, it proves that Jesus is less than Messiah because he disobeys the Old Testament law. If, on the other hand, he says, no, she should be stoned, he disobeys the law of the Romans, and they would exact some kind of punishment, perhaps even death. Either way, the Pharisees say, we win. Either Jesus is shown not to be the Messiah or he ends up likely put to death by the Romans. In this case, the only problem is this woman who is being used in order to make their point. Perhaps you feel the pain of the pinch here that the Pharisees are laying before Jesus. It is a real problem. What should Jesus do? Before we read the following verses to discover what Jesus did, I want to reframe the problem for you a bit. You know sometimes the answer that we come to is assumed by the way the problem is posed. Instead of looking at the problem the way the Pharisees looked at it, either you're going to obey God or the Romans, and the one that you disobey will demonstrate or perhaps put to death, put you to death, I want you to think about the problem this way. Did the Pharisees really love the law of God? It is assumed in this passage and other passages that have come before, the Pharisees really loved the law of God. They loved it so much. It was their love of the law of God that moved them to question whether Jesus was the Messiah. Perhaps everything you've ever thought about with the Pharisees would lead you to say, of course they loved the law of God. They were experts in the law of God. They not only loved the law, they wrote long commentaries in the law. They debated the law. It was what they spent their time considering. 
You might even say they love the law of God too much. They needed to relax their love of the law a little. If that's your view, the Pharisees and their love of the law, I want you to reconsider for just a moment. I think their history with Jesus, and especially this passage, would tell us, in fact, the opposite. They did not love the law of God enough. They should have loved it the way the psalmist loves it in Psalm 119, verse 97. He says, you might know this, Oh, I love the law. It is my meditation all the day. Or I can even say they should have loved it as much as Jesus did. In John 4, verse 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me. I think it's more accurate to say the Pharisees loved their use of the law. The way they could use it, hear this, for their own purposes. In this case, to try to trip up Jesus, to condemn this woman, to justify themselves. That's what they really loved, their use of the law of God. But what if they had understood instead that they were not really loving the law? If they had, they may have instead of what they did see, they would have seen Jesus as a true fulfillment of the law of God. When God says in Hosea 6 verse 6, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, if they, del- if they love the law, they would have seen in Jesus the embodiment of mercy. And when they looked at this woman, their real love for the law would have led them to have real love for this woman and not a perverted joy that they had caught this woman or set this woman up in this awful situation in order to try to trap Jesus. They would have had no joy in the misuse of others to show their hatred of Jesus. They would have understood that even in the Old Testament law where stoning was commanded for adultery, he was not because of hatred for people. Listen to this. It was for God's design to fashion an Israelite nation that would embody the holiness of God. And the nations would be drawn to the Israelites and they would find hope. And they would find a future in the coming Messiah. It wasn't because God simply hated adulterers that he commanded they they be put to death. It was because he loved the nations that he wanted to guard the holiness of Israel. Now let me say it again. This passage is not, first of all, about adultery. Adultery is wrong. But adultery is only the occasion for the Pharisees to lay their trap. What this passage is about is the ability for us, of us, to say that we love the law. No, we really, really, really love the law of God. But then to use it to justify ourselves. Because we really, can I say it strongly enough, we love the law and we love ourselves more than Jesus And our love of the law leads us to hate Jesus. I wonder if that has caught your attention. That a love of the law of God in order to justify ourselves leads to a hatred of Jesus. Because if you've heard nothing else 
in this series of sermons about the interaction between Jesus and these religious leaders where they have tried to trip up Jesus again to demonstrate conclusively he is not the Messiah. That desire to discredit Jesus does not come from a love for him. It is not because they thought, Jesus, we're trying to help you with a few things you don't understand. If only you could figure out these things with us. Let us come alongside you so you can understand the law rightly. So we can really figure out whether you are the Messiah. That was not their motivation. Their motivation was, Jesus, you're a threat to my system of thinking. In my system, the law justifies me. I am the person who uses the law in order to demonstrate to others they should be like me. Jesus comes bringing mercy, and they say, you cannot be the Messiah. No way. In the previous section that we read a couple of weeks ago, they have now schemed to put Jesus to death. In addition to all that means about the misuse of the law, The motivation being wrong. Not only does it lead to a hatred of Jesus, but it also leads to a misuse of others. Could you think through that for just a moment? That is quite a mindful. But I'm hoping that you will see how easily that comes to the human heart. If you use the law to justify yourself, think of all the ways we do that. Why don't you just be like a a parent like I am? If you parented more like I did, your kid would be better behaved. What's wrong with you? If you worked as hard as I did, if you just applied yourself, if you tried harder, you could be successful. Why aren't you trying harder? Why don't you become more like me? Why don't you become involved more? Why do you see so lazy in life? Why don't you become more like I am? You can think of all the ways... That you try to use the law of God that calls us to work hard, to be good parents, to be involved in the life of the church. The law of God calls us to all that. But when we use the good law in order to try to justify ourselves, in order to elevate ourselves above others, what you end up doing is hating the message of Jesus. You will hate him. Because of his mercy. And you will inevitably come to misuse others. Again, I tell you this morning, this passage is not about adultery first and foremost. It is about loving the law, but hating Jesus. And in that hatred, misusing others in order to suit your purposes. If this passage is not about adultery... What I would tell you this morning is that it is about the mercy of Jesus. Let me emphasize that with the rest of this passage. Jesus does not respond as the Pharisees anticipated. He begins writing in the dirt. If you want to read a lot of interesting Old Testament rabbinical speculation on what he was writing, just look at the passages that talk about this. We have no idea what he was writing. At the most we can say is that he was not rushing to judgment. But still they continue to badger him with the question, what are you going to do, Jesus? Should we stone him right here, right now? Is that what we should do? Should we, uh, should we follow the law of Moses? Doesn't the Messiah want to follow the law of Moses, Jesus? Where are the stones? 
Come on, let's do it. You're not scared of the Romans, are you? If you say you're the Messiah, there should be no reason for fear. Come on, let's do the deed. But Jesus will not answer them. Instead, he asks the question that hangs above the passage. For those who love the law but hate Jesus, he says to them, let him who has no sin cast the first stone. This also is a direct reference to the Old Testament in chapters 13 and 17 of Deuteronomy, the Pharisees' favorite book, where the law says that witnesses to the crime are responsible to execute the sentence and they cannot be participants in exacting the sentence if they're participants in the crime themselves. <laughs> now look at the way that Jesus points to the heart of those who are bringing the accusation. Jesus is not telling the Pharisees they have to be perfect in every way. If they've ever sinned in any respect, they could not participate in this judgment. No, he was saying, in order to judge this woman, these Pharisees also had to be free from lust. In this case and every case. And he is saying to these men, how many of you can righteously say, I've never lusted? If you've never lusted, here's what you can do. Pick up the stones and stone this woman. And we read in this passage, they all disappear. One after the other until they're all gone. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He is placing these Pharisees below the law, under the law, subject to it. Not in a position to use the law for their own ends, but to reveal their hearts. It would be appropriate for me to ask you this morning to consider your own hearts in regard to the law of God. I know some of us take a great deal of satisfaction in loving the law of God. I love the law of God. I love the commandments of God. You all should follow the commandments like I follow the commandments. It's human nature to want to do that. Have you never driven a car down the street and saw someone do something stupid and say to yourself, well, if only they drove as well as I did. Have you ever watched someone parenting their child in the grocery store? I saw this just yesterday. Someone parenting their child. And in my mind, I'm like, well, you know, if only they were as good a parent as I am. Have you never looked at someone who's struggling in their work and said in your own mind, if only they would work harder, if they had applied themselves, if only they were more like me, they wouldn't be struggling in this way. Why can't they be more like me? Again, I say to you, oh, I love the law of God. It is my meditation day and night. But I am using the law to justify myself rather than point someone to the God who is. What does what we recognize in others what does what we pick out in others reveal about our own hearts? Or if I can even ask a more sensitive question, when you see the mercy of Christ apply to others, does it ever flash through your mind? That's too easy. Shouldn't they have to work for that a little bit? Why should someone who has lived a life of sin 
just all of a sudden get off scot-free. Oh my word, some of you know I did prison ministry for more than five years before I came here. You know how, how often I heard that from people? These are terrible people. How in the world could the grace of Jesus Christ apply to a murderer, to a rapist, someone who's done terrible things to children? How could the mercy of Christ be applied to them? When you see your own heart in the light of the law of God, you're not moved, first of all, to judgment of others. You're moved to love the mercy of Jesus. And you're moved to love the mercy of Jesus because you know that mercy has first of all been given to you. And the Pharisees knew that. They knew what Jesus was saying was true. That if you humble yourself under the law of God, you end up looking to Jesus and not hating him. And for that reason, they all disappeared until it was only left until he was only left with Jesus and this woman. It is true, Jesus does not ignore her sin. He tells her to go and turn away from her sin. It's a very easy application of this passage to tell you as well, if you're living in sexual sin, turn away from it. It does not please the Lord. But even more than that, Jesus offers her what the Pharisees would not, that is real mercy. Real and deep and tender grace. To end this morning, I simply want to note to you throughout this sermon, I've placed you in the position of the Pharisees. Have you noticed that? There's good reason for that. It's often the place that we struggle to be. Do you love the law of God in a self-justifying way? Do you pride yourself on the goodness of your life in a way that others have not yet attained? And does it lead you to despise the mercy of Christ? And does it lead you to the misuse of others? But as I end this morning, I want you to think about yourself not as the Pharisees, but as the woman. Are you helpless? Have you also been caught in your sin? Do you see that you deserve judgment for what you have done? Let me hold before you this morning in the most clear and powerful terms. Here is Jesus. And here's his mercy for you. He speaks mercy, but more than that, he gives himself to you. There's no sin greater than his mercy. If you are stuck in your sin, turn away from it and flee to Jesus. His mercy is greater than the sin to which you say in your mind, but there can be no mercy greater than this. There is greater mercy, and there's greater mercy for you. So if it helps you when you go home, remember this. It's mercy over stones. That's the real story. Not self-justification in light of the law, but the incredible mercy of Jesus Christ over the use of the law that will lead us to despise Jesus and to misuse others. This is God's word. Would you join me in praying?
our Heavenly Father, I feel the, old, the, the same sting of your word that many of us might feel this morning. But I also feel the great joy of knowing the mercy of Jesus Christ. Lord, we might look in every place and in all kinds of ways for things to alleviate the struggle of our hearts. We might believe that we just need more. We need the approval of others. There's something we've always been looking for, but we've never quite found it yet. And once we do, everything will fall into place. We'll find that peace. And Lord, I am certain that when this woman who was caught in this awful moral situation who did rebel against you in the way that she lived, when she walked away from Jesus, she had experienced mercy that we can still know today. Lord, we do not sanction the breaking of your law. In fact, it is because we love your law. It is because we love the way your law transforms us into a people who are evidence of the kingdom of Christ as it has invaded this world. It is because of your law that we ask that you would as well give us a motivation not to use your law in a way that harms others, but in a way that leads us to appreciate the mercy that your Son offers us. Lord, would you hear us and would you work powerfully in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, would you stand and sing with me this just perfect song, Amazing Grace, My Chains Are Gone.
Amen. You may be seated. We're about to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And it is my privilege to invite you to come and celebrate the Supper with us. If you have received Christ as your Lord and Savior and you are resting alone in Him for your salvation, know and be confident that He has offered to you in the gospel. If you are a baptized and professing communicant member of good standing in a church that professes the gospel, you're welcome to come. Please let me encourage you to come. And if you live penitently and you seek to walk in godliness before the Lord, then this supper is for you. And I invite you in Jesus' name to eat the bread and drink the cup. I should also warn you that according to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, If you're living in persistent sin, there's a part of your life where maybe your life as a whole is not being lived in submission to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, please do not come to this table. Paul says, it will bring judgment on you if you do. And I say that with no joy, but with seriousness. On the other hand, when I warn you, I'm not suggesting that any of us are perfect. The warning is not meant to drive away those who trust in Jesus Christ but rather to point you to the hope that in Jesus Christ your sins are forgiven and even the sins you're struggling with, my friend. Jesus Christ is a power, the power and the willingness to relieve you of those sins and to cover them in his blood. So if you are a sinner saved by the grace of Christ and you're struggling against your sin, come and receive from Christ the grace that he offers to you in word and in sacrament. Before I set aside these elements for this use, I want to read a few verses from Matthew chapter 26. It says, Now as they were eating, this is Jesus with his disciples at the Last Supper, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. In a moment, I'm going to use those words to break the bread and to pour the cup. But I want to focus on that last verse for just a second. Because when we say we do this in remembrance of him, do you really know what that means? It does not mean simply that Jesus died for you. He certainly did. Let me assure you, he died for you. Take joy in that. But I also want to assure you he is living for you. That he is at the right hand of his Father at this moment. And in the Lord's Supper, a Reformed Father said, we are brought up into the heavenly places to actually commune with Jesus himself the one who is alive and reigning from the Father's right hand, this is the one that we fellowship with, not just each other as joyful as it is, but with Jesus himself. There is confusion about what that means in the later chapters of Matthew. I don't know if you've noticed this, but in Matthew chapter 27, when Jesus is delivered to Pilate, Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Is that who you are? Later on in that same chapter, as Jesus is being led to the cross, 
intending to mock Jesus, the soldiers, they cry out, Hail, the king of the Jews. They're making fun of Jesus. He's no king at all. Look at him. And Matthew says over his head, when Jesus is being crucified, they place the charge against him which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. What kind of king is this that dies on a cross? And then the ones who are crucified with Jesus, they say he saved others, but he cannot save himself. One of them says, look, he is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. All kinds of mockery. What kind of king is this? What kind of king is this who is reigning from the right hand of the Father that we are joined in communion with this morning? Is he a king in name only? Is he just one that we believe is the king? And if you believe strong enough, he's king for you. No, I want to read to you what happens at the death of Jesus. At the death of Jesus, that thing that we remember and are drawn up into the heavenly places by this morning. It says in chapter 27, verse 54, when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake that took place when Jesus was crucified, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this is the Son of God. That might not mean a lot to you, but those who know the Scriptures... When you hear that, you should be reminded of Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, there was a great picture of the coming Son of Man seated in His glory. Daniel says, And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man. He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before Him. And to this Son of Man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and tongues should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall never pass away, and his kingdom one that shall never be destroyed. That is the one that we commune with this, with this morning. This is his supper. This is your king. Would you join me in prayer? Fathers, we eat and drink together. We are in awe that you would love people like us and we are so thankful that we can look beyond ourselves to our savior who has established this kingdom that when we eat this bread and drink this cup we are participating in the life of the king of kings and the lord of lords lord give us a high and holy sense of who your messiah is this morning we pray in jesus name amen As they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples. I now ministering in Jesus' name, give it to you. And he said, take, eat, this is my body. The bread will now be distributed. Please hold it in your hand, and after everyone has received it, we'll eat together.
Our Lord Jesus said, Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, our Savior also took the cup, and having given thanks, as has been done in his name, he gave it to his disciples, as I now ministering in his name, give this cup to you.